Welcome to Joiners, the podcast with Tim and Danny, where we explore the world of hospitality by chatting with its most colorful characters. That's right, Danny. What's up, Tim? How you been? Been pretty good. Good, good, good. A little bit of running around, but pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. How are you feeling? <laughs> I'm feeling good. Danny, we've been on the electric boats together. Yes, we have been on the electric boats. What do you call Up on Rockwell. Up Rockwell. Yeah. What do you call that location? It's a good question because I don't know. Yeah. It's got to have a name. Yeah. It's a, it's a community of cool things going on there. It is. Uh, I remember one of the times we were on the boat together. Liz is the one who turned us on to that. My sister Liz and Brian, yeah. our partner. Um, they, you, so you can rent these electric boats on the river. You board at Rockwell by like the Metropolitan Brewery. And you can go one of two directions. You can go south towards downtown. And then you get kind of like that river tour, architecture tour. Or you can go north towards the north branch, which is like surprisingly residential and yeah, like some beautiful homes. Beef. Yeah. Yeah. I saw a coyote and her pups one time on the swimming? banks. Not swimming, but like <laughs> running along the banks of the river. Is this the time that you brought the uh, Italian subs without onions? Uh, yeah. I think I brought subs from Conti and um, Danny, who uh, has made a living in the cocktail world, brought wine. <laughs> <laughs> Which prompted... Yeah, then I, da- I damaged my finger opening a bottle of wine. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's yeah, classic. how did that happen? I don't even know. There what was, a, what there was, was blood. A disaster. There, there was blood, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, uh, this... But Liz was giving you shit because she swears that... Um, yeah, that's true. That you have never made a cocktail for her. Never In prepared person. a cocktail yeah. for her. So your retaliation... Yeah, that's true. So, <laughs> so Well, I guess we have to talk about the, yeah, the so, actual trip. Right, so... Fast forward a little bit, I make a cocktail for Liz um, with a lot of her favorite things called the Shipwrecker. And the reason that I got this name is because when we were on this electric boat ride, um, Liz really wanted to be the captain, the one steering this boat. And uh, I think even Tim and and Brian were like, "Uh, I don't know if that's such a great idea. And within minutes, uh, Liz nearly shipwrecked us by um, basically uh, steering our boat into the banks of the river <laughs> and uh they can get away from so, so to give the <laughs> listeners an idea of what these boats are it's like a donut shaped boat and um i guess yeah that one was donut boats. they have other yeah. shapes but we were on a donut boat so you can actually like you can turn the rudder in a way in which you can actually do donuts i think that river. one was actually we've done it on the donut and the other one i think this was the non-donut okay this time I think I like the donut. Yeah, it's pretty fun. It's got a shade there. It's 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 easy. It's quiet because it's an electric motor. It goes mm, seven knots, maybe. It's not very fast. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know the knots. But when you're version. when you're heading towards the bank, it goes very fast. Yeah, it seems. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, so that was the first and last time we let Liz take the wheel. <laughs> yeah, but um, is the, sh- the shipwrecker is no longer on the menu. No, it is uh, not. But it was it was a delicious. Drink. It was a good one. What was in it? Is uh, a... it was a gin and passion fruit right. refreshing drink. Um, Anywho, what is near where we near the dock where these boats uh, are taken That's out? That's right, which I've just learned is called Rock Rockwell on the River. Oh, nice. Um, so in this location is uh, is Judson and Moore. That's right, the distillery owned by our guest today, Elise Bergman, and her husband Colin Moore, yeah. master distiller. It was really cool to hear uh, the story of it all and how it started. Their musical background, musical beginnings, maybe. Yeah, and how they've built. A brand really around their interests in lifestyle. I've known 
Elise and her family for a long time, and I'd never really heard the story of Judson and Moore, and it was interesting to, it was just kind of like, all, all of a sudden it was like, oh, Elise has a whiskey company. Yeah. <laughs> it just kind of came out of nowhere, I think because there was like a soft launch during the pandemic, which we talk about, um, but it's cool to get the whole story. For sure. And they kind of had like a nice uncompromising view that they were able to execute really well. Mm -hmm. So I respect that. And it's working. Yeah, for sure. So So without without further further ado, ado, please enjoy our conversation with Elise Bergman. Welcome to the studio. Thanks for having me. Last time I saw you, I think I was uh, acing you uh, on the tennis court. If I remember correctly, I took away the W. (laughs) That is true. (laughs) Elise and Colin dominated a uh, Memorial Day mixed doubles tournament. I will say that was, well, Shannon was my partner. And I will say it was her very first time playing tennis. Oh my God. Which is odd. We beat you when you were playing with Elliot, my brother, who. It was Elliot, also Elliot's was first time. Tim's not <laughs> telling the truth. Elliot was like high school <clears throat> champ. And was it, he really? It was the first time I ever beat Elliot. So I. Elliot I, was not. Oh, he was the champ of the family in high school. No, of the high school. <laughs> that can't be right because I know this because. Well, Elliot's, a little, <laughs> Elliot's older than me, but I I made it to the state tournament. Um, I love Tim. My freshman year, this. in doubles, and I played Barrington at the state tournament first round, and I got my ass smacked around the court, and it was like. I think it was like 1-0. It was like maybe a 25-minute match. Do you remember the names of any of the players? Yeah, it was Adam Morgan, who Elliot later told oh, me his yep. dad was a tennis pro. So yep. that explains that. And I don't remember who his partner was. Okay. But I think they made it pretty far in the tournament, so I didn't feel that bad. Nice. But yeah, Barrington had a pretty strong team compared mm-hmm. to... Joiners listeners are going to love this tennis history. <laughs> it's important information. I mean, yeah. you're wearing your U.S. Open hat, which, you know, people might not be able to It's, yeah. it's probably this U.S. Is a, Open golf. Yeah, this is a golf U.S. Open hat. But, but he is enough. a tennis I fan. I don't talk about golf. <laughs> Danny was invited to go to the U.S. Open with me last year, and he uh, declined. That's true. Not even politely, he just declined. Yeah, I just pretended I never saw the messages. Yeah. So anyway, so you guys, so you and Colin, do you play tennis together frequently? We like do. as a we, as a team? Uh, no. Well, we play just singles against yeah. each other once a week, and then uh, this summer we're we're playing some mixed doubles. And does that get pretty heated? Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> I would imagine. Where do you guys play? Uh, this summer we're doing just park district league essentially oh, okay. playing playing mixed doubles, um, and then I play at Midtown on a women's team. Oh, cool. Um, but Colin is very competitive, which Tim knows because they play. He's extremely every, athletic. Every once in a while. He hasn't yeah. even been playing tennis that long. He's, no, he's he, very good. He, uh, he, he played a little growing up, but not, not on a team like, like we did. Yeah, sure. Um, but, but very competitive and like better at, at leading the, the winning, the winningness. Uh, so, so I have to, I have to keep up a really, yeah, really the couple hold, that plays together tight. stays together. And you guys also play music together. We do. And we, we run this whiskey distillery together. Yeah. So I feel like I that's, we, um, we like each other. Yeah. That from a brand holistically, I feel like a bluegrass band couple that makes whiskey together. It's a nice package. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a vibe. Yeah. What is, what's a great you, vibe. And what instrument do you play or what 
primarily play stand-up bass and sing. Colin plays guitar and sings, and we in in this band, Big Sadie, uh, we both write write songs. Every so often, I'll play guitar. If we're doing a, a duo show, we'll do two guitars. Is the singing shared equally? Uh, yeah, I'd say we we both have. Who's got we, the better range? We both uh, we we have a very similar range, which I think is probably. Really? Why why it works for bluegrass and, and country music. But Colin is like a little higher tenor. I've got a low alto, so so we end up kind of trading parts a little bit. That's cool. High tenor, low alto. Have you always been into music? Yeah, I grew up grew up playing piano, played French horn in, in band, uh, started playing guitar in high school. So So you can play a bunch of instruments? Not very well, but yeah, I still uh, I'll perform on, on bass, guitar or keyboard. Cool. It's always it is a very musical family. Yeah, our parents both played uh, piano, guitar, trombone. My dad was a trombone player. That's where I got the horn. Nice. Uh, <laughs> Did they start you guys all the same way, or was uh, it just individual interests? Individual. We did. Everybody started piano pretty young, and then band and you know big suburban school starts in fifth grade. So that's my older brother and I started playing um, band instruments. My younger sister. Uh, who is music full-time as an adult she started violin at like three or four so a, a little a little sooner three or four uh, I couldn't, could you imagine Arthur with a violin I could at not, three could I you could imagine, imagine a violin hit, at ten I could imagine getting hit by a violin <laughs> at if he's three or four holding one well Lewis plays fiddle right yeah so same instrument just different style of playing mm-hmm. um, violin lessons but he actually takes all, all three of our kids take lessons from Jess McIntosh who's the fiddle player in our band huh, cool. um, so she does a little bit of classical Suzuki and do they band. cooperate yeah my kids are very cooperative have you met not met Lewis no he is the most polite boy I've ever met how old like, oh that's so sweet he's he'll be eight in a couple weeks okay it's legit yeah. I mean, I can't imagine even you all playing piano at such a young age and not like fighting back. No, I like, it's just, yeah, it's I think just you just have to get it. And, yeah, but, I hated practicing piano when I was a kid. I started when I was like I hear seven. So many of those stories where someone's like, "I was forced to take piano. I hated everything." Yeah, that's why I wonder. Like, did your parents do something special with the messaging? Was it just like on your terms? Like, my mom was like, "You have to practice twenty minutes a day," and I'm like, 20 minutes." <laughs> I'll right. die. No, I'll die I, during that I, time. I definitely push back on practicing and, you know, taking classical piano and wanting to learn the pop songs or taking jazz piano and uh that that I think stayed engaging when I was a little bit older, but certainly a struggle and I, I remember all my siblings like begging to quit or oh, coming right. home crying so and, and wanting yeah. to to not do it. That checks um, out. And I think they our parents did a, a pretty good job of making it sort of a requirement or it's like it's the expectation that's yeah. like behavior or you know just yeah it's, it's an expectation um but letting us bergman jenna direct it enough that it felt like something that we wanted to be doing um and then time away from music it i think we all kind of came back to it on our own terms as well okay so, so did you no begin... not not through and and colin who plays you know my husband and business partner and bandmate he grew up his mom my my tennis partner partner. and opponent um his mom is a musician she's actually a fiddle player and ballad singer and so colin grew up playing a little bit of violin a little trumpet then didn't want to play and came back to guitar in high school and 
I think that's a common story too. Right. And and even said, like, why did you let me quit? Yeah. And his mom is like, Well, I don't think you would enjoy music now as much as you do if I had forced you to stick with it. Yeah. So. Do you think if Lewis depart because he's probably into it now, right? He he likes it. It, it it's a struggle to get the kids to practice. Like yeah. there's and violin is tricky. It's like a screechy instrument and it's hard to it it's an instrument that you play with other instruments. So is without it hard that for them element, to tune it? do you help tune oh, it? Oh, it's such a hands-on like parent or <laughs> or a teacher instrument. Lewis has started to play piano, and that like I think he can see the 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 melody is a little easier to grasp on the piano, and he uh, he'll sit down on his own and play something. That's do you cool. think that like humans have a language acquisition device where like there's a sweet spot for learning? This is my theory that that maybe I've talked about it, but I I think you know you your vocabulary explodes at a certain age. Do you think that there's a certain aptitude at a certain age for learning music too? I that's how I justify not learning as an adult. I'm like, well, I'm past that stage. Yeah, and I, I think you know, with my sister who played violin and was in orchestra and really excelled in that kind of early elementary phase. I saw that happening, but I was already in like fifth or sixth grade and said, well, maybe I want to play violin. And mm. like people said, no, you're too old. And so <laughs> I think string instruments, there is, like, it, it starts in that age or three yeah. seems a little early. And a couple teachers or a couple of musicians that we play with said that four is kind of the prime, the prime age for, which is from, so what, I've, from what I've heard. Yeah. Um, but the, as a parent, you know, you, you kind of try to, let your kids guide based on we happen to have three kids and they all have extremely different personalities and um, are motivated by different things. So trying to to let them feel like they're leading something or that they have the opportunity to be independent um, and feel fully supported and secure in in those explorations. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, as a somebody who taught for a long time, I think that's also sort of an important way to approach approach anything or, or employees, you know, um, not like manipulating somebody into thinking that it was their idea, but, (laughs) but recognizing what people's skills are, what their strong suits are, um, how they communicate, uh, how they receive affection and affirmation and, and all of that. I think, uh, it's, it's a valuable lesson to learn if you're in a leadership or instruction or parenting role. Yeah. I never thought of the parallels between parenting and running a business. I guess because I don't have kids, but I guess <laughs> when you are when you're in an authoritative stance or as an authority figure, you're in charge for of you know guiding in the path. I guess right, or just you're but, responsible so. for um, a lot of things. I mean, it could be livelihood. It could be right. You know, keeping somebody alive. <laughs> so did you start drinking whiskey at a young age too? Then <laughs> no, I I was kind of straight edge growing up. Um, so. I think it's easy for me to approach it as like a, a craft and yeah. um, grow up, play music, doing a lot of visual arts and really interested in food and, you know, agriculture. This is kind of an extension of that for yeah. for me. Um, and I think it's important as a brand that we're not, you know, promoting drinking it's a sipping whiskey it's a it's a high mm-hmm. quality product um with a lot of a lot of thought and and kind of community that that's built into it and so trying to trying to build a liquor brand that represents you know something, well, something i've never else. had i've never <laughs> taken a shot of your whiskey yeah i i don't i don't allow it <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's so the you, rule you've of the never tap done room. it 
uh, I, I have. Uh, we have some really cute little vintage cordial glasses, so you're allowed to take a shot out of one of those. <laughs> yeah, it has to be out of a um, sweet vintage cordial glass. But I do, I sort of discourage that. Yeah, um, no, yeah, that's... Uh... That's a real inflection point in the night when the shots start going. Yeah, anyway. the original <clears throat> Del Maguey Mezcal cases used to ship with a sip it, don't shoot it on the side. That's it's good. Yeah. It's, I think it. There's so much. There's so much that goes into into making it. You don't want to see it just. Yeah. Get wasted yeah. on. So how did the distillery come to be? So you know, as I mentioned, growing up, doing a lot of, of visual arts and interested in food and presentation. I think my, like, what I wanted to do when I grew up after, I was like, oh, I want to be the first female president. <laughs> then I wanted to be a doctor. But starting around 10, it was, I would say, I want to either op open a restaurant or own a boutique. And I sort of have had the opportunity to kind of do do something that really is, is encompassed by that. But it was mm -hmm. a desire to create beautiful things and bring people together to enjoy them. So um, I don't know that I very intentionally as a 10 year old started to pursue that, but <laughs> but did like make jewelry and sell it out of my backpack or always kind of had this entrepreneurial spirit and creative drive. Um, yeah, we met through clothing at Isles right. Factory, I believe. Yes. I mean, I, we, I always try to figure how I know, we talked about this on Memorial Day, like I, like, we know your whole family, but I couldn't tell you where we met right. or the, when it was. What's the linear yeah, timeline? Yeah, it's just kind of always been around, or we've always been around or whatever. Right, but, but probably 15 years ago, or maybe yeah. not quite that long, 12 or 15 years yeah, ago. Yeah, pre-stock, for we sure. We met, um, and I was, oh, AI is a manufacturer here in town, uh, does a lot of uniforms. Tim has done, or former business partners with the the son of the family that founded that business, but they were doing a uniform project. So I had a clothing line under my name for a long time, and with my interest in food and hospitality, did a lot of uniforms, consulting, yeah. interiors, basically tactile goods for restaurants and hotels. And so... Um, what was the... Kinfolk was the restaurant I helped with i think was that, oh, what, yeah. was that what it's called kinfolk was that seafood restaurant yeah it was um, kind of in river like north. that river north area yeah. but west river north yes yeah i think that was the first thing we actually worked on together yeah, yeah. did you ever so did you ever work with isle's parents at the factory met both of them but they and chong they did a uh they did a jacket for the clothing line that I have now, kind of recently, and they're there just cutting all of the fabric, or very hands-on. Yeah, um, yeah. Isle's dad is still there every single day, yeah. ripping a cigarette. Actually, no, he doesn't smoke anymore. He's got health problems. But like, when I was there every day, he was just in the cutting room, cigarette in his mouth, and just kind of speaking in like haikus, w words of wisdom. Yeah. He is a cool family. Here's a potentially dumb question. Sure. If you are smoking cigarettes, near all the fabric how does the fabric not take on the smell of cigarette smoke i've always wondered that and i think it's because the cutting room is so huge super high ceilings i they're also korean and there's a very funky fridge there and you've like yeah you've talked and so it always smells like kimchi in the <laughs> in the cutting room too and, and the clothes never smell like kimchi or cigarettes well so. i don't i mean that must be the ventilation. But cigarette smoke, like when you're in a bar or when you used to be in a bar that had smoking Terrible. Or overseas, yeah. you'd come home and you'd stink like cigarette smoke. I mean, I, so I use a lot of vintage fabrics too, or I'll like source from yeah. eBay or antique stores. And um, there's always a like, comes from a smoke-free home. And yeah, you, can yeah. Tell, exactly. you can tell when it doesn't. So, so I think it, it lingers. Some magic Do you have a trick for getting rid of that smell? 
No. No, she doesn't buy that. She buys you the have to wash home, with so. uh, vinegar. Vinegar, let it dry in the sunshine. Some yeah. natural, sunshine natural bleach. Dry. And pray over it. That's like you ever go to Richard's bar? No. The one it? bar. Oh, also where you still River, smoke. Yeah. River it's like Grand and Milwaukee. Yeah. And yeah. If you wear an outfit, wear a disposable outfit to that bar. (laughs) You won't want to wear those clothes again, even after the sunshine dry. I didn't know that was legal. (laughs) So (laughs) who wanted to do the whiskey distillery? Is that you or your partner? So, um, Or your husband? Colin and I, with my background in design, hospitality, and then a big interest in growing food, kind of from an herbalism and nutrition point of view, but just discovery and curiosity, too. and then his interest, he worked as an engineer for a long time, but also, you know, we have had a garden for a long time and um, just super curious human. Have this band together. We kind of daydreamed about what our what our long-term goals were. So talked about sort of retirement plan. It's like, let's buy a, an old fire station and convert it into a, a community spot. Music venue, health food, home, home-brewed beer, whatever it is. So just kind of early in our relationship, knew that we worked well together and enjoyed doing things together and kind of started talking about what it would look like to actually go into business together or put put our efforts. You know, he didn't want to help me with my clothing line. What's something that we could do that ties together all of our skills and interests collaboratively? So we just started talking about that. He, um, we were, you know, making kombucha, home-brewed beer, sprouted grains. Uh, I started making bitters with some of the herbs that I was growing um, and just sort of riffed off of what we what we did together. He started thinking about whiskey because it's like there are so many microbreweries, but there aren't really these small craft distilleries, not, not in this area anyway. Um, and whiskey is something that he enjoys drinking with, with friends. It's, some, it's kind of been, been his spirit of choice. Um, so we just, we started kind of thinking about that. He actually started applying to business schools. So, you know, studied for the GMAT and, and GRE, um, thinking that if we're going to start a project of this scale, we need to, to bring in some, some outside partners or, um, having a small clothing line, you can, you know, sell a few dresses and then make a few more. And, uh, this, this wasn't going to be able to scale in the same yeah, way. Much higher startup costs. Yeah. Um, so, but he, a little bit of a sideline. He was working um, as a civil engineer in water resources, and somebody that he worked with heard that he was applying for grad school, and he essentially got offered to to get a master's in his field, civil and environmental, um, in the top program in in his field. And so it's like, well, okay, I'll do this. It's a one and a half year program. Um, that's valuable for like long term career. And then if I, I like I like school, so then I can do business school after that. So and also it didn't it didn't seem very accessible. Separately, my dad, who always he's an entrepreneur, um, ran a business for a long time in the in the finance realm, um, always had ideas for us. It's like, oh, you're a designer, you're an engineer. Let's design a retractable fence to keep the deer from eating the hosta or whatever. It's like, no, <laughs> yeah. not not too interested in that or. Um, Colin and my brother Elliot, who we talked about earlier, did end up building this really beautiful stone wall at the at the family property where I grew up. So my dad was always kind of engaging us in our in our skills because he he knew that we were passionate about about things and capable of execution. Like the fire pit at your house is like, 
I was like, man, this is a cool fire pit. And Ellie's like, well, you don't even know like how this thing was designed. And then he explained to me, I was like, wow, a lot. Yeah, what's this the fire pit one story? Fire pit. It's just, I don't know, you just kind of hike up in the woods it's and it's a fire pit, but it's council like... Council ring, you know, yeah. meet, meeting of the minds. You gotta... You <laughs> yeah. gotta... It's where you'd go for a Zanza. Yeah. And, uh... create, create space in nature to, to come together. Um, but it's like so... aligned some way with directions, maybe guided by the stars or something like that. It's v all very intentional. They That that was a an Elliot and, and Dad project <laughs> that, I, that I appreciate, uh, that I appreciate, but was not, not as involved, but... Um, <laughs> But, you know, my dad was super curious and able and, and just always engaging people to, to do the best with, with um, their ideas. And separately, you know, one of these times, it's like, okay, you're a designer, you're an engineer. Uh, he said, I want to, bourbon is huge, but what we like, and we would buy my dad, you know, interesting bottles of Japanese whiskey for Christmas. Or that was sort of a way that he and Colin would exchange around interesting things happening in the food and beverage. Um, so bourbon is so hot, but nobody's making a really great rye in the same way. That's what we tend to enjoy. Let's, let's make rye whiskey. And this is, you know, long into our kind of like daydreaming and brainstorming. We'd already, we already had a business plan for this project that my dad came to separately. So it was a very aha moment. And my dad's background in, in finance and running a big business was exactly the part to, you know, okay, here, now we have a partner who can do that. Colin can focus on the whiskey making. I can focus on the design and hospitality side. Um, so it was kind of like the missing piece. Yeah, everybody playing to their strengths. Exactly. Um, you know, my dad sort of joked about it, but Colin's tall, bearded guy from East Tennessee. Uh, so he, he definitely, like, looks the part of, of whiskey maker. <laughs> 100%. But his... <laughs> when he's holding a guitar, he... He looks the part. Yeah. Uh, but he his, he grew up in East Tennessee. His dad was a professor at University of Tennessee in chemical engineering, but taught distillation for 50 years. So he, he's oh, grown up with, with um, that works kind out. of that language. And um, most of his family is in hydrology or chemical engineering, but he went into civil and environmental. So much overlap, though. So he, he has the language and kind of the mindset to, to be... A distillation engineer um and i think a lot of people have the flavor profile or have like mixology desires or or like the idea of it but he really is approaching the whiskey making from from the science and engineering of it um, and i think that's what what set us up to make a quality product are there <clears throat> specific decisions that he has made that separate it from other whiskeys being produced well, so our initial mash bill or recipe, um, the idea is that if we're if we're using if we're in Chicago, if we're if we're staying true to kind of our roots, we're using local resources. We're going to have grain grown in a cooler climate, so a rye grown in Minnesota, Wisconsin, Canada, Illinois is going to have a little bit more spice than a rye that's grown in in that like more belt. southern, yeah, um, traditional area. So that just the flavor of the grains using Lake Michigan water, using Minnesota white oak um, weather is going to kind of influence a more northern recipe of a of a rye. Whiskey. So are all the barrels Minnesota white oak? All the barrels are Minnesota white oak. So they're all virgin barrels yes all new charred oak um we worked with a cooperage in minnesota for a little bit it was a father-daughter 
team and we liked that idea since it was father, daughter, son-in-law um, situation in, in our business as well. Um, they kiln dry the wood and then there's a, we, we now are working with the cooperage in Kentucky and they air season all of the wood. So it sits for two years um, and there's a notab- noticeable difference in the way that the, the whiskey comes out of those barrels. So they're all Minnesota white oak that's been air seasoned and then charred. And then we put, we put the whiskey in those. What, so what is the cooperage in Kentucky contributing they, they, you know, <clears throat> quarter saw all of the oak into staves, and then they so the put the barrel together. So the oak is coming from Minnesota, yes, but they're and assembling they, and it they in assemble Kentucky, it. and then putting it and back we, to you. Yes, exactly. Cool. Um, and then the the Minnesota. My dad was from Minnesota, so that just like the regionality of that is important. But also, colder weather trees are going to have tighter rings, and so that's going to interact with the whiskey in a different way and as are well. these all 55 gallon traditional so we when we first started we would fill um a 25 a 35 and a 53 okay. um and then we eliminated we actually colin is so dated you know engineer's mind so data driven that he just you know he you can read all of the, the information or there's this idea that smaller barrels can make it age faster yeah. um and some people you know, scoff at that because then it yeah, tastes too woody. And, yeah, I mean, whatever. Yeah, but but wanted all the information for ourselves. Um, so all the the first barrels were were very tiny differences in the the amounts of grain that we were using, and then everything went into one of these three barrels. And pretty soon, even after just a few months, decided that those smaller barrels were in fact too woody, and we didn't we weren't going to use those. So we emptied all of the smallest ones and actually now they're we put them into a, some used woodford reserve barrels so those are those are finishing in in something else to try to kind of mellow out that wood flavor um and now we're just using the the bigger traditional bigger barrels. barrels cool it's cool that you could see right away how much like the whiskey was leaching the wood flavors yeah and it's you know everything is such a long there's such a long timeline on on the experiment or or learning how it how it tastes and mm-hmm. i think another approach that maybe is a little bit different is um i think some people you know you cut the whiskey heads hearts and tails so you get rid of the poison and then you get rid of kind of like the dirty gritty flavor um some people do wider cuts in that hearts to have better yield um but colin has been like kept that pretty narrow to really let the kind of dissolute come forward and yeah, they say the artistry is the cut yeah and i think he's he's got a good a good nose and a good a good palate um and that's been something where you know yield is maybe not as high but then it really it, it ages really beautifully what's been your favorite expression so far so we have four um, that we're doing consistently. Initially, we were just planning to do rye and a high rye bourbon, but with this early experimentation, um, had some kind of surprises, and the surprises have been kind of the best sellers. So um, we have a red corn bourbon, which uh, I love. That's kind of a fan fan favorite. The farmer in central Illinois who grows our corn said, hey, I have some of this you know, bloody butcher heirloom variety. Do you want to try some? So we were just going to mix it into kind of our the rest of our bourbons, but kept it separate just for the for the data. Um, and the the flavor 
it, it was amazing how different the, the flavor profile came through, even in the unaged spirit. So like a, a yellow dent corn is going to be a lot sweeter. That, that's going to give you a lot of that kind of traditional caramely bourbon flavor. Um, the, the red corn is slightly higher oil content, a little less sugar content. And a, a lot of people have described it like literally as it tastes red. Um, <laughs> but I think, you know, berry or antioxidant, um, it has a little bit of a tartness to it. And it, it just, it's, it's clean, it's mellow, it, it's really lovely. It doesn't have, I mean, our, our traditional bourbon has a higher rye content too, because I think sort of house flavor is a little less sweet, um, just personal preference. So Are we're these not, all bottled at the same proof? Yes, everything's, um, everything's at uh, 94, and that we did sort of a, a test of, you know, Barrel strength down to eighty. Yeah, that's the Elijah Craig proof as and, well. And um, that was you. You can see it. We have it on the shelf in the bar. Kind of like favorites. The the ninety four was the one that people came back to the most. Cool. And oh, then, so you crowdsourced that info? <laughs> uh, just with our team. Yeah. And a few other folks. This episode is brought to you by Scofflaw Old Tom Gin, a tasty, versatile spirit. Created in Chicago in 2012, the product was born out of a need for a bespoke iteration of the Old Tom style, which is the slightly sweeter predecessor to London Dry. Scofflaw Old Tom Gin carries classic notes of orange peel, juniper, and coriander while balancing on a subtle floral edge thanks to the addition of osmanthus blossoms. Its elevated proof is suitable in cocktails or unadorned. Scofflaw Old Tom Gin, complete your bar. Let's talk um, just like the basic build of a whiskey because mm -hmm. it like specifically it has to be, I, I toured um, Buffalo Trace many years ago and they went through like the percentages of grains. What, what yeah. constitutes whiskey? What rye? How well, does that depends work? depends if it's straight bourbon or straight rye. Well, at least yeah. does. Yeah. Um, so I think that's a, that's a super common question or, you know, a lot of times people are like, how can you make bourbon if you're not in Kentucky? Uh, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but that's a very common question to be bourbon. It just needs to be 51% corn to be rye whiskey. It needs to be 51% rye. And so your red corn, that, is that one, is that 51% 100% red corn or is that mixed with a different corn? Um, so the, I mean, the, we've, we've tried a few different a few different mash bills, but it's, we're doing, the red corn is just red corn, no yellow corn. Mm -hmm. um, the rye, for a while we were doing 70% rye, 20% yellow corn, 10% malted barley. Um, and then that changes a little. We did like a 65, 15, 10. Everything consistently has 10% malted barley. Okay. And then that, we haven't gone down to 51%. We're, we're keeping kind of the primary ingredient somewhere between and six, 60 and 70. It's the same barley across the board? Yep. Cool. And then another kind of experiment is this single malt that we weren't intending to do. We had, my dad had was very fixated on this idea of doing a hickory smoked rye. Hmm. Um, and then that would give the rye a little bit of a, of a smokier flavor. Um, but... We tried hickory smoked. We tried a number of smoked ryes and a number of smoked malted barley's, um, and then just did our our rye 
and then the intention was to blend them back together. But the rye had enough spiciness that it didn't it didn't need the smoke. It it you have the perception of a kind of smoky feel without that smell and mm. we liked it as it was. And then we had all of this smoked grain that we were experimenting with and just, you know, sampling sort of these experimental batches, this applewood smoked barley was just delicious. It didn't, it didn't have that artificial smoke flavor and smoke can be very polarizing, mm -hmm. um, but really nice, almost in like the mezcal territory. Mm -hmm. So we ended up bottling this, this single malt that was 65% applewood smoked malted barley, 35% malted barley. Um, and that's, we, I mean, we have smaller quantities of that. We were intending to just do limited release, but that's the one that's won the most metals that's what people are are coming in and asking for um how do you guys smoke the grains yourself or is there a facility no there's that? a um there's a maltster in indiana um a lot of people in chicago work with with these folks and um they they'll do all sorts they'll do like mango wood smoked and anything you want so they're they uh, we we tried a few different things and again with the with the data smoked barley or malted barley is regulated elsewhere there are certain certain varieties that basically like once they go through the smoking or malting or distillation process have a certain amount of carcinogens in them mm. um, and in canada and scotland where where that's a more common whiskey ingredient there is more regulation but single malt is kind of the last whiskey territory that's not Heavily regulated. Heavily regulated, mm. yeah. But like rye, bourbon, all of that, you know, those are legal classifications and single malt is a little bit um, more. American single malt is sort of a, n a new category that's very kind of on the rise. There's a lot of discussion and it seems like there will be some regulations coming in very, very soon here. But any of the grains that we tried... Colin was sending them to be sampled to make sure that this this conversion and I, I've blah 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 blah. Yeah, yeah. I've heard, heard, yeah. heard enough of it. Heard it enough times, but um, you don't want it to be too carcinogenic. Can't, can't think of it right now. Yeah. So he yeah. he kind of self-regulated uh, and then found one variety that that doesn't have any traces of of this this chemical compound. Um, so that it's kind of cool. You know, again, engineering-driven approach yeah. to the process. Yeah, cool. Um, how is this? Might be another stupid question, but how is proof calculated and measured? And and another, this one's really stupid. But why do we have? Per, why is proof twice the percentage? Um, yeah, is that just left over from. Yeah, it was like I think it had to do with like gunpowder and like the proof at which the gunpowder uh ignited oh so that's really kind of like the history of of how proof oh. became a thing i didn't i didn't know that that's one yeah. of those things i think so i mean i can't wait to get roasted for, uh, <laughs> pun intended but uh, yeah i can't wait to get roasted for this take later on we'll look into it fact yeah. check it i'm pretty sure that's the origin but yeah it's just redundant it's just a, a weird complication just yeah. proof is so called because back in england in the 1500s the government would levy a higher tax on liquor containing a higher amount of alcohol alcohol content was determined via a rather crude test basically the government would soak a gun pellet with alcohol and try to set fire to the gunpowder 
There you go. All right. Wow. Yeah. Now we know. Yeah. Nicely done, Danny. Yeah, I mean, I barely had it, but yeah. You were, now you're you on have right a little, it looks like um, one of the little guns that you scan your groceries with that yeah. has kind of a Barcode straw scanner. in the bottom. And you put that in and it tells you your Digital <laughs> read mm -hmm. automatically. Yep. So, and that's the only thing affecting your proof is time, right? No. After I mean, it's, after the distillation process is yes. begun. So, um, yeah, the way that it goes through the still is going to yeah. impact how it is. The, the cuts are going to impact your proof a little bit. Um, it has to go into the barrel. This, again, it's going to, I'll get roasted if I say the wrong number, but it's like it can't be under 116. It can't be over 120. Or yeah, those those numbers, um, one of the distillers could tell you more accurately. But there are regulations on the proof that it needs to go into the barrel. Otherwise, it can't be called whiskey. It would be called like a distilled spirit special or, or something. So there's no way to increase the proof after you've if you put it through the still. So if it comes in too low, then it's like light whiskey or it has to be something different. Yeah, if it's too low, there's no going back. <laughs> right. So it, it all goes into the barrel between 110 and 115 proof, and then it comes out of the barrel. Sometimes the proof can increase if there's a lot of evaporation, like more water is coming out. So mm -hmm. in hotter climates, you might get a higher proof barrel strength pull. Um, or in cooler climates with less evaporation, it might stay a little bit more steady at whatever it entered. And that evaporation is known as the angel's share, Danny? It's true. Uh, yeah. So I, let's talk yield for a minute. So when you're filling a barrel, mm -hmm. so what, what did you say 53? Mm -hmm. So what, how, what's the evaporation rate? How uh, much are, how long does it take to lose could, half that it volume? It could be f uh, as much as 5% per year. Yeah. It's, okay. Isn't that the general? Was, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. And it, it's, um, we have this big, basically, you know, poured concrete bunker that it's like four hour fire rated explosion proof room where all of the barrels are stored. We have HVAC in there, but we don't use it. So it does, there is some fluctuation with, with temperature. Um, but if it, let's say it's like 85 outside, it might be 78 in the, in the barrel room. Um, I think it's gotten up to about 85 degrees in there and down to probably 50, 50 mm -hmm. degrees, 53. If it's, if it's, Super you know, cold. Yeah. Super cold. Um, so we, we get a little fluctuation, and that also that's what causes the barrels to contract. That's what imparts the, the aging flavor. Mm. Yeah, so theoretically, if you had your barrels in a place that sees wild temperature swings, mm -hmm. could that expedite the process? It's just more evaporate. You'd probably have more angels. You'd lose more of the whiskey. Yeah, the if angels. there's a lot of right, a lot more heat, but yes, theoretically, like because the that, barrels are essentially would, breathing, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That, and that's why they don't. That's why Elise is saying that uh, they don't temp control the warehouse, even though it could right. be. Yeah, I remember it, when I was the Buffalo Tracer. Um, They're talking about like even different locations in the barns or whatever. Like you're going to see different right, uh, and, flavor and so people people have so many so many theories about that, but they'll rotate barrels exactly. to higher higher places in there's a warehouse. Like um, or, you know, people will blast a subwoofer in, in their okay. storage room to, to have more vibration or, you know, people put it, put their barrels on boats and, um, that movement is going to, and you guys sing to else. your barrels. We, yeah. we sing to our, we sing folk music. Your, to yeah. our your kids sing to <laughs> them. Lots of good, let's transition a little bit into the events. Well, let's talk mm -hmm. about the space first. Did you guys start out, um, was your first distilling there? Or did you move into that space? Um, yeah, first 
first distillation to scale was there. We did a little bit of um, a little bit of smaller scale experimenting before before moving in there. Uh, we looked at a place over kind of by your spot over on West Carroll, um, mm-hmm. kind of industrial corridor. How far west? West of Western, over by like Land and Sea. Yep, yep. Um, and then, it, you know, whiskey is it, it smells. It's loud. We we mill our own grain. The uh, the equipment gets loud. So we we were interested in that space over over on West Carroll, but had a hard time getting neighbors to agree that it was a good business mm-hmm. to move in. Um, and then we found this space. We're in Rockwell on the river, um, between on, on Rockwell between Belmont and Elston. Um, really beautiful old leather tannery courtyard, kind of it's such a cool wonky space. Yeah. wonky buildings with sort of funny additions where you can imagine like leather carts m- moving along this mezzanine and. Um, the developer also owns and, and redeveloped Bridgeport Art Center down mm-hmm. uh, by Comiskey. Yeah, What's that there called you go. Now? Good. Uh, it yeah, is US currently. Center. No, it's guaranteed rate. Oh, guaranteed. Oh, yeah, okay. sorry. It's Comiskey. Yeah. Um, so great vision, and his idea for this space was to to create kind of a food and beverage campus that was a, somewhat similar to what he's done with Bridgeport Art Center, which is uh, events and and artist studios. So good track record for for getting kind of collaborative, like-minded collaborative tenants yeah. together. Um, but when was it redone? Actually, were you so like? We, was there anything in your space before you were there? No, we first looked at the space in 2015. Okay, um, I was pregnant with Lewis, who's about to be eight. Yeah, um, and we knew that there was a brewery going in. Uh, it's right when Half Acre was moving from their Lincoln location to their new Belmoral yeah. place. But I was like, maybe it's maybe we'll be neighbors with Half Acre because they hadn't announced where they where they were yet. But um, Metropolitan is who's there, yeah. and then Metropolis Coffee Roasters. That was the space that I kind of fell in love with because they it's like these beautiful heavy timber bow truss ceilings, but it was just too much space for us. So we had this kind of funky little front building that wasn't as um, picturesque as some of these other facilities but still really really lovely exposed brick and heavy timber um we signed the letter of intent kind of late in 2015 and a couple weeks later of a fire that started in this front office building took the whole second floor off of our building Mm. so we thought we were going to go back to you know maybe we'd appeal that west carol landlord or um kind of back to the drawing board but what ended up happening is that they reconstructed the space with our use in mind. So the timber oh. that was in there was actually um, like two inches shy of what you need to keep it exposed. So uh, we would have had to drop the ceilings, even though there was this amazing wood there. So now we have the timber that's that's the right scale to leave it leave it exposed, and then. The mezzanine that was around the whole side of the building we kept for our office, but now we just have a, a big open room for where the barrel storage is. And then the production room, we actually didn't put the second floor back in. So now we basically have a two-story room where the still is that gives it a lot of space. And the, the still that we use is made in Louisville, Kentucky, Vendome. It's just a, a beautiful piece of equipment. So we get we get to kind of have that column go high into the high into the ceiling and we could scale we have four fermentation tanks now but we could kind of scaffold and do a second a second level kind of build up but it's a, it's a big beautiful room full of 
copper and yeah. steel. <laughs> um, How many barrels are being aged at any given time? Um, we have about 450 barrels right now, um, and we're, we have capacity to increase, um, increase production, but our storage was kind of the bottleneck for a little while. Um, Will Glasic, who I mentioned earlier, or who grows our corn, they have a small distilling operation as well. And so he has a big warehouse down in Paxton, Illinois. So he'll bring a, a couple big totes of corn and then take some barrels back to their oh, cool. their facility. And then some in Tim's apartment. <laughs> I have some bottles stored in my liquor yeah. cabinet. It's true. <laughs> it's not really scratching. Not really uh, making a dent. No, no. Sorry. And more. I could take on more anytime. Yeah. Right Just now we, we fill approximately a barrel a day with our production schedule, but we could ramp that up to we're doing more like... Instead of five a week, we're doing fifteen a week or so. Yeah. Um, so that that's the goal, but we'll fill and empty. But in this early phase, I mean, we started distilling in January 2020. So we just we have one a couple of barrels that just turned three, but now we have more and more consistent product that's two years of age that we can that we can pull from. But until you know March of this year, we were just like emptying half barrels or quarter barrels to fill enough bottles to kind of fill our shelves yeah, and the going. handful of accounts that we have. How old do you want it to get? Two years is like pretty optimal for a, a rye bourbons. I'd say, you know, four years is um, going to give you a, a better quality. We'll try a six year. I mean, I think favorite batches will, will hold back, you know, a third to half of the barrel so that we can do a reserve release or, or something. So we'll, we'll just keep, keep trying so much of, of why we got started as an interest in experimentation and curiosity. And, um, I, it's fun that we don't have to stop. I mean, we will, we'll continue to do these four flagship products, but just distilled a rum. I don't, I don't think we'll ever bring that to market, but mm. we do have this tasting room where there's an opportunity to share we're cool. about to release, it'll just be a hundred bottles or so of a smoked bourbon. Um, so it's a, a smoked corn and smoked malted barley. Um, so there, there are, there are opportunities to kind of play a little bit. This episode of Joiners is brought to you by Bronca USA. Question, Danny. What's your question, Tim? <laughs> My question is, how would you categorize Fernet Branca? I would consider it an after-dinner drink or a digestif. It is an Amaro, so Amaro just means a bittersweet herbal Italian liqueur. Okay, and in, so you would use it, you would drink it after a meal? I would drink it after a meal, uh, one that is either you know particularly heavy, rich, to help aid in digestion, or just because I think after a meal, it, it helps cap things off to have something that's like a little bitter, a little sweet. So it, uh, yeah, so it sparks digestion, you're saying? I so, think so. It's so if you have an upset tummy, yeah. you're reaching for the Fernet. It's the digestion Kickstarter. Okay. Yeah. yeah. All right. I don't know that I've ever used it in that way, but I will now that I know. Yeah. How do you usually use it? Shoot, ripping shots, man. <laughs> <laughs> Multiple shots back to back. Yeah. You know, beer in a shot. Love that. I think that's uh, it's one of the options at um, Sporties for the yeah. low life. You get a high life and you get a shot of either bourbon or uh, Fernet, right? Yeah, it's the industry handshake. Yeah. All right. All right, cool. Cheers. Cheers.
All right, we've grilled you enough on the whiskey part. Let's talk about the branding and packaging. Which... Okay, that's a little bit more my territory. Yeah, so it's the packaging is beautiful, award-winning packaging. Thank you. Yes. Um, let's talk about where you guys started. I mean, we know where the name comes from. Mm-hmm. Your dad and yep. Colin's last name. Yep. Dad's first name, Colin's last name. Um, how did you start with the branding, logos, fonts, all that stuff? Where did you take the lead on everything? Um, you know, I, I took, we had a couple of iterations. Um, we worked, you know, Potluck Creative also kind of, oh, yeah. Bayou. Mikey. We, we worked with Mikey, uh, or we worked with Sam Jordan, who's not with Potluck anymore, oh, yeah. on a very early version. Um, I mean, that was probably back in 2016. Um, first kind of like sample, sample bottles or just, just early experimentation. And then we worked with, um, another gal wink is is her her brand um she's done a lot of kind of consumer food voges and yeah um, yeah i've seen her stuff yeah um and it's it's tricky because we're you know you don't want to lean too heavily into heritage or you don't want to lean too heavily into newness and i think what we're trying to do is create a very simple quality superb product and so branding needs to to match that. And so we are very design minded, but there needs to be something that's super classic and approachable yeah. without feeling too throwback. And I I think that's a hard balance to strike. Yeah, especially yeah with um, you know the whiskey world is a thing of tradition and heritage. So how do you walk that line as a new brand? Yeah, that's a really delicate balance. Right, and and in a way that feels true to what our story is, which mm-hmm. is you know like a, a Tennessee engineer with the distillation background and uh, you know minnesota raised businessman who grew up on farms building silos and it's like obsessed with trees and grains and yeah cool stuff <laughs> uh, and we're a chicago brand and so we we played with the chicago star for a long time too but I, uh, that that's done so it's so tempting to go after that star and mm-hmm. everyone does it but it's really hard to work that star into branding right. without and it looking like, um, you know, Grant Park uh, merch for tourists. You totally. Know? Or like the, you know, Department of Cultural Affairs or <laughs> yeah. whatever that is. And um, not leaning too heavily on any of those pillars of what makes our brand. Um, so it, it was a challenge. And mm-hmm. um, I also, you know, my role is kind of design and community, uh, but after my dad passed away, I took over a lot more operations. So I didn't quite have the bandwidth to to take full responsibility for it in the same way. So we ended up bringing on these designers from Austin, Texas, Land. Um, we love Land. Who've, who's they've done a number of whiskey brands. Um, their partners in Madre Mezcal, which is like all the rage right now. Um, and they they take a really lovely approach, um, kind of holistically thinking about about all of that. And I think our the first stuff that we got back from them felt a little too new, or we were missing. They they heard us say that we were creating sort of a new brand in a new region, um, and it and it felt uh, like it was missing that simplicity and groundedness so it's lots mm-hmm. of back and forth and i think because i'm i have so much design background i'm probably a pretty challenging client to have because i'm 
you know, making hands on, yeah. are very, How many very revisions were there until you landed on the final branding? I couldn't branding. tell you. <laughs> um, enough that, that they sort of gave me their blessing to, to make the changes that I needed to, and um, which is a, a good compliment. And it, it just, um, I think they trusted that my aesthetic was aligned with, with theirs. And so any of those last little tweaks, they, they said, you, you got it. But mm -hmm. um, what we ended up with, and it is, it's a, a tall, simple bottle, not, not oversized by any means. Um, it, it doesn't like nothing ostentatious or um, crazy, just simple, elegant, approachable. And what we ended up doing, I think there are a lot of things in whiskey that are, that are kind of over, overdone or kind of traditional, like rye tends to be in a green bottle. Um, bourbon tends to be in a yellow or orange toned label. Um, I think those make sense because those are the colors of the grains and, and we, we have a little bit of that in our color palette as well. But grains are, are used and we have, I, we had this sculpture, this limestone, carved limestone sculpture at our home growing up that is, it was called Tree of Life. And it, it has kind of, it, it looks a little bit like corn or um, a little bit like the, that symbol of Tree of Life, which I think represents so many good things in multiple cultures. And we'd, we'd gone back and forth about the star or incorporating grain or, or something. And, and they felt unrepresentative of, of the brand as a whole. But this, this Tree of Life, I think, kind of clicked into place. So I actually did a little hand carved block. Um, and so some kind of early revisions oh, from cool. what the designers had sent us. It's like, this is the motif that we're going to use now. So I did the, a block print and then sort of a, a hand drawn version of that. And then they took it and, and did like a, a digital vector that kind of cleaned it up a little bit. And so that is kind of the, the motif on the top of the bottle, um, where it's a nod to the grains that we're using, but also kind of stands for something a little bit more familial. Now, I mentioned the award-winning packaging. <laughs> so you guys have won a lot of awards recently. How do, how do these um, competitions, what does that look like? What, what, is, what does the preparation look like and mm -hmm. then the actual event and... So How does that happen? Some, um, like the first medals we got were for our rye and our single malt, and that was last year at the uh, ACSA, American Craft Spirits Association, conference. And they did an awards ceremony. We go to some of these distilling conferences, but Joe and Peter, our um, two distillers besides Colin, happened to be there. So it was really fun. Like <laughs> they were there and got to go up and receive the medals. And um, you just, there are a handful that are kind of the prominent spirits competitions you send in a few bottles and your you know competition fee and then they there are panels of of judges they're bartenders or distillers or super smellers is is a term that some of the whiskey people have um and so it's a, a blind taste test basically and then there's a point system um so there's so, no commentary from you it's not like tell us about your process it's just like Send them a bottle. Yeah, they'll do the judging. Yes, and I I think different people do it differently, but some don't even let the don't even give the judges the same order of spirits because that can yeah, introduce some bias. Yeah. Um, so the order in which you taste does affect ab how you rate. Absolutely. Um, or hearing somebody else or just, yeah, like, Oh, number two is right. very good. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so I think there's various levels of, of seriousness and, and how that's set up. Yeah. Um, it's so fascinating how that's executed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
so we submitted to four four competitions and all four of our spirits ended up receiving medals from all four of the competitions so um super proud of colin and and pete and joe um and it's good, it, you know, you don't, you get people who come in and buy a bottle or come back or enjoy coming to the tasting room and it's a good experience and they bring their friends. Um, but it, for a project this big that we've been working, sort of had our heads down working on for so long, I mean, since 2015 and then thinking about it before that, um, it's a really, it, it's awesome. It's yeah, awesome it's affirmation. Yeah. And I think that they're, I don't know how much that will impact our like long-term trajectory but i do think that there are people who pay attention to yeah, that and it's it, not going to hurt it and it will set us you know it, it sets us up and we had very early considered sourcing but pandemic sort of like changed that a lot of a lot of new brands to get over that like two-year yep. aging hump will will source bulk spirits and blend it or just source it and, and it's marketing brands who are who are out there um but through pandemic and all of our like early to market restaurants and bars being closed, we just kept producing and kept mm. producing. And I, that was a risk to take too, where we were delaying our, our revenue stream. Yeah. And, but we got to 18 months and it was like, this is, this is good at 18 months. Mm. We're going to push for this last six months and, and only re release our own stuff. And that, that felt like a risky decision to make, um, financially where where we were and and getting these awards feels like a, a big affirmation like that that was the right choice but it's also cool for your consistency of product mm -hmm. you didn't just sell like mgpi stuff for two years and then sold your own product which would taste totally different absolutely um so what do you hope for in the future for judson and more like what are the next in your wildest dreams what is, what does it look like in 10 years uh I mean, ten, 10 years, I think we, we will theoretically outgrow our current production facility. Um, but I love the space, I, the way that it all came together, our neighbors, that the neighborhood is really growing and changing. So, you know, maybe that will remain sort of the, the primary destination for tours or um, tastings. We, have, we host music there regularly. Uh, but having some sort of offsite production I'd love to own a building. I think that that's um, that comes with its own set of challenges for sure. Um, but I, in, increased production somewhere else. Uh, let's talk briefly about the events you host mm -hmm. here. Uh, you mentioned um, community as part of your role, and I know you have a nice network in Chicago. How have you brought in culture into the space? So we. Uh, Events primarily focus on music right now, as we said earlier. We're my Colin and I are both musicians, um, so it's a it's a great place to be able to bring in friends to play. Um, I think we could kind of kind of thought of sticking to bluegrass Americana, folk music, but somebody that we've worked with a lot, or um, Sully Davis, has a production company called Local Universe, and he's somebody that used to book us at the Hideout, and always really respected his his sort of taste, his drive, his kind of his musical network. Mm -hmm. um, so had very early talked to him about maybe doing a series, but it just so happened that alignment with, with alignment that he had been working part time, um, like managing a farmers market, and 
was wanting to focus more on music. And so there was an opportunity for him to kind of help us with some of those supplemental things like social media or just getting the brand ready to open. Um, so he was helping with kind of random tasks and then booking one show a month. And um, then that turned into two shows a month, one show a week. Uh, and so we have a lot of great local bands, but because of his history in Chicago, in, in music in general, um, he's getting tapped by a lot of great like booking agents. So we've, we've gotten some really lovely national artists stopping through on their tours. And um, that, that's been a really fun way for people to, I mean, kind of going back to that idea of like, it's not a, it's not a shooting whiskey, it's a sipping whiskey. Um, getting people to engage in activity around, around beautiful things, around lovely people, um, really promoting connection and, and lifestyle and enjoyment beyond the, the product that we're making. Yeah. A holistic experience around yeah. the brand. It's important. All right. So before we get to the gratuity round, is there anything else you'd like to cover that we haven't already covered? Any shout outs? Uh, well we'll get to that probably this episode of joiners is brought to you by stock manufacturing makers of fine hospitality workwear you obsess over the details in your space so why stop at your staff's uniforms stock has something for every aesthetic from fine dining to a corner cafe they've got you covered Choose from in-stock ready-to-wear options or design the perfect custom uniform for your team. For more information, visit stockmfgco.com. All right. Elise, are you ready for the gratuity round? I don't know. I just got you nervous. <laughs> Her body language is saying no. Yeah. Well, it also could be excitement. Yeah. Like it could be. Excitement. She can't wait to tell us what her death row meal is. My death row meal. Yeah. I don't know if I'd go for like sushi or hmm. like steak taco, steak street tacos. Okay. Yeah. What's That's your good. street taco spot? Zacatecana, right on California by the distillery. It's a good place to yeah. go for a, a good steak burrito. Yeah. And then what's your sushi spot? Sushi's tricky. I haven't had like really yeah, good sushi in, in a long in a long time. Um, I love good sushi, but I end up enjoying mediocre sushi. A yeah, lot of the time. there's a lot of those things. We've been enjoying uh, sushi doku. We live not oh, far I from there, and that's a solid takeout for us. It's convenient. Nice shout out. It is. A, it is a good shout out. Doku represent Susan and Harlan. We appreciate you. Uh, <laughs> all right, what's your favorite hidden gem restaurant? Back to the Mexican El Barco Mariscos on Ashland. Good oh, one. Cool. And what's the order one. there? Got to get a michelada. The, I like the michelada. But the margaritas are sweet, but I don't mind. Mm-hmm. Um, we get I get a whole red snapper. Okay. And their their uh, chili paste dip is so delicious. I haven't yeah. been to El Barco in a while. Let's do it. Yeah, it's patio season. Let's add it to the. Uh, have you been to Alegrías across the street from there? Probably. I used to live there and just would. I, I Back love and a forth, good taco. Yeah. yeah. They have a kind of signature shrimp dish that's really tasty. Um, all right. What is your favorite fast food? Tim's been one-upping all of your answers. I love this. <laughs> I'll keep it going. I'm, I'm not <laughs> big into fast food. 
No, um, I didn't think you were, but in a pinch on a road trip with the kids, where are you going? Wendy's. Wendy's, yeah. okay. Spicy chicken Second person to mention Wendy's. I like the, I mean, maybe it's because they're sort of a healthful option. I like the baked potato. Mm. Okay. With all of the ingredients. Sometimes they have broccoli, wow. broccoli cheese, and sour cream and chives. Loaded um, potato. But I also like a Culver's butter burger. Mm. Excellent nice. choice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all right. What unexpected trivia category would you dominate? I'm pretty good with the celebrity category. Really? Mm-hmm. Pop culture? Pop culture, yeah. I you just, and Shannon I remember, should get together and talk about that stuff. I remember people and names, so yeah, I can, I can do that. Okay, good one. Uh, to what do you attribute your success? Hard work. Um, yeah, opportunity. The pe- people, I think, remembering people, being connected. I, I think there's a lot to be said about building your community up, and, and you'll be supported in similar ways. Yeah. Um, what is something that bars or restaurants do that might annoy you? Mm, fabuloso. Fabuloso. It's a, it's like that purple cleaning stuff. Oh, the cleaning, stuff. yeah. Oh, and wow. Smell. It smells. And I, leaving a place, like you were saying earlier, you leave and you have to wash your clothes because they smell too much like cigarettes. If I've been to a place, even if I didn't notice it when I was in there, and my clothes smell like that after, it, it leaves me feeling a little yucky. That's a great answer, and hmm. I can't believe it hasn't come up yeah, yet. Yeah, I don't know how often that has happened to me. Does it happen too frequently? There are some places where it seems a little wow, a little more Egregious. poignant. Yeah. Man, I need to get that list to um, avoid. I got a, a sensitive nose, though. Yeah. That's which is maybe, for maybe good for whiskey is, making. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was up at, uh, in Door County when I was a kid, maybe in high school, and we had to evacuate a restaurant because someone in the back had mixed cleaning chemicals. And it was like, it started with like, what's that smell? And then people coming like, excuse me, everybody. We need to oh, no. need you to head towards the exit. We had a mishap in the kitchen. Terrible fumes. Yeah. All right. And then our last question. <laughs> what is the best thing about Chicago's dining scene? Oh, man. Chicago is just the best dining scene. So I think, is that a cop-out answer? <laughs> yeah, I, but I, why? Why? I mean, there's such amazing talent here. There's so much amazing farmland nearby, so you don't think of, um, you know, it's not California. You don't have, like, amazing fresh greens all year round, but you do have, like, you know, cattle, pigs, and then amazing. There there are just really great small farms that are, I think, supporting the the farm-to-table movement and then so much talent and innovation in um, and there's and there's great design. I think I think Chicago is a city that people stay in because community is so important. And so the way that that chefs and restaurateurs support each other um, makes it so that there's kind of access uh, and education that's part of part of all of these destinations. No, well, it's pretty for rain for the farmers. <laughs> all right. Well, that's a wrap on Elise. Thanks so much right. for joining Thanks us for today. Me. Thanks for being here. And 
And that concludes our conversation with Elise Bergman. Thanks for listening. And please remember to like and subscribe to the pod. Tell your friends about us. Drop us a review if you're so inclined. You can catch extra content on Instagram at JoinersPod. And remember, this episode was produced by Matt Haddock, music by Captain Cuts, and reels by the one and only Joe Guzzo III. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Thank you.